When you go to bed at night, do you worry about going to jail? Not really. But I bet the guy who was previously the president does. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. At least I would. I got the feeling that something ain't right. And I know he does. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. His worst nightmare. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. No makeup. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM People-Powered Radio in Los Angeles. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. we got some Minnesota news coming up today. Uh, we also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. So the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most... Of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. I, um, As we go to air here, Desi Doyen, yeah. I get this breaking news from... Uh, Washington Post, politics alert. A federal government shutdown looks more and more likely. Here's why lawmakers are at odds and what a shutdown would look like. Gosh, I wonder which lawmakers they're lawmakers. talking about. Well, everybody knows that lawmakers can't get a, Republicans and Democrats cannot get along in <laughs> Washington, D.C. Everybody knows that. They don't have to spell it out. In fact, uh, Washington Post, and it kind of uh, it comes on, uh, on the heels of our conversation yesterday with uh, media critic Dan Frumkin, um, it is Republicans who are fighting amongst themselves over uh, whether to keep the federal government open past a, a week or so from now. They can't even agree amongst themselves. Democrats at this point have nothing to do with it. So, you know, you might better serve the public and the voters, Washington Post, if you spelled that sort of thing out. Anyway... Uh, that's just something to irritate me right at the top of the show. <laughs> oh, goody. Let's uh, let's start with some, uh, other than that, some bright news today before we ruin it all with everything else, uh, which is actually not true. We've got some good news today, at least until we get to Desi's latest Green News report. <laughs> There's so some good stuff there, in there. Sure, we'll see. There is. Anyway, uh, more than two-thirds of the world's population favors... Solar energy, that is five times more than public support for fossil fuels, according to a new global poll as reported by Reuters. Well, there's some good news. The survey conducted by Glocalities in collaboration with advocacy advocacy groups Global Citizen 
and the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative was based on interviews with more than 21,000 people in 21 countries between January and June. The countries included Australia, Brazil, China, India, Italy, Mexico, South Africa, South Korea, Turkey, and the United States. Solar energy is popular very and it outpaces fossil fuel energy basically everywhere is my takeaway here with 68 percent support solar power was the most popular energy source what do you think was second desi doyan i would hope wind but you are correct it was wind 54 percent what's after that um, I guess hydropower. Very good. Because are you people, cheating? No, people are catching on to the idea that, hey, fossil fuels kill 7 to 10 million people a year just from air pollution alone. And I think people understand that, yeah, we prefer clean air, clean water. And look, here's all this free energy falling from the sky in the, in the form of the sun and the wind. So, okay, so why not go for that? So solar and then wind and then hydropower and then what's next? Probably natural gas. Well, you blew it. Okay, it's, what is it? It turns out nuclear. Oh. 24% uh, support nuclear with only 14% of respondents saying they favored fossil fuels, according to the survey. Just 14%. <laughs> My guess is there are people who are invested in them or make money from them. From the nukes or from, from, the, fo from, from the, the fossil, fossil fuels? fuels yeah. uh, well, I mean, the fact that the next closest uh, to fossil fuels was actually nuclear and when, you know, when nuclear power is more popular than you, basically, you must pretty much really suck, it <laughs> seems to me. Uh, it is it is not this just this one survey. Reuters reports that the Glocalities poll reinforced other surveys showing robust support for renewables in Europe and the U.S. The EU's latest Eurobarometer from May to June, for example, found 85 percent of European support, quote, investing massively, unquote, in renewable energies such as wind and solar power. A Pew Research Center poll from early 2022, which dated, uh, which predated the global spike in uh, energy prices following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, showed 69% of U.S. adults prioritized developing alternative energy sources like wind and solar over expanding the production of oil, coal, or natural gas. 69% preferred clean energy over dirty energy, even right here in the U.S., in, uh, in the U.S., the uh, newer Glocalities poll found specifically solar energy was also the most favored power source at 58 percent. Fossil fuel was just supported by 24 percent, which is a pretty tiny minority, especially for all the priority treatment that the deadly industry gets from our government. And even that... That 24% is much more support, was well ahead of the global average support for fossil fuels pretty much everywhere else. Nonetheless, fossil fuels still account for 77% of global energy consumption in 2022. That, according to Michael Sheldrick, the co-founder at Global Citizen, one of the folks behind this uh, survey, Quote, he says, regardless of demographic or political affiliation, Democrat or Republican, solar power emerges as the world's preferred energy source, which indicates that there exists a common ground. A common ground? What? In U.S. politics? Impossible. 
a common ground where political agendas can align with the clear demands of citizens, said Sheldrick. Of course, the GOP is so deep in the pockets of big oil, coal, and gas that, frankly, despite you know even Republican rank-and-file voters far preferring investment in solar and wind and other renewables, elected Republicans and the far-right, the far-right corrupt Fox News-type outlets that prop them up are, are, are still going to stick with the folks who stuff cash into their campaign coffers, no matter what their actual voters think. They don't give a damn about them. They give a damn about the campaign cash. But nonetheless, it does seem like a great opportunity for the not-bought-and-sold Democrats to win over a few of the, even a lot of these Republicans to their side if they really go all in on renewables right now. Meanwhile, as the U.N. General Assembly meets in New York this week amidst huge rallies by climate protesters, scientists say the world needs to cut greenhouse gas emissions, which mostly come from fossil fuels, by around 43 percent by 2030 from 2019 levels to have any hope of meeting the, frankly, very conservative uh, international Paris Agreement goal of keeping warming well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So, you know, did you enjoy the heat and the flooding and the wildfires and the storms over this past summer? Because I'm afraid you ain't seen nothing yet unless and until we get our energy act together. And even then we're in for a a very bumpy ride in the years ahead, I'm afraid. Yeah, when you consider what we went through this past summer alone, that was about, you know, 1.2 or 1.3 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So that's where we are right now as a planet overall on average. That gives you an idea of what it can be and how much worse it could get if we get all the way up to 2.0. Yep. Uh, but uh, we got some still, br- but we is at least for the moment... Don't ruin it already, Des. At least <laughs> okay. for the moment, the world is in favor of renewables. That's that's my takeaway here, and they do that not like fossil news. fuels. And now for some even brighter news along these lines that I'm certain will not get the kind of coverage, really, that it deserves from the U.S. corporate media. So allow me to turn to our friend Tom Hartman, who covered this uh, nicely in his newsletter today. He writes, America is facing an environmental crisis that's costing us thousands of lives and tens of billions a year. The last time our country faced such a natural disaster, President Franklin D. Roosevelt stepped up and dealt with it. Now, writes Tom, the Biden administration is doing the same. In 1933, he writes, America was both in the depths of the Republican Great Depression and facing an environmental disaster of national proportions. Sweeping from Texas to Nebraska, the Dust Bowl lifted 1.2 billion tons of soil from over 100 million acres, blowing it as far east as New York City, where it browned out the skies for weeks. The Dust Bowl, he says, killed around 7,000 people and left at least 2 million homeless. The storms also had a cascade effect on U.S. agriculture. Wheat production plummeted by 36 percent. Maize production fell by 48 percent during those years. The main cause of the Dust Bowl, as anybody knows, was the 
uh, widespread deforestation of the central U.S. for cropland, combined with soil-destructive agriculture practices and widespread drought through much of the 1930s. President Roosevelt ended it by starting the Civilian Conservation Corps, or the CCC, which planted more than 3 billion trees. It built trails and shelters in over 800 parks, and it planted seedlings on marginal or abandoned farmlands. The trees planted by the CCC can still be seen today all over the country, he notes. So can, by the way, all of those trails and the shelters at parks across the U.S. where they still stand as a monument today. Especially also the roads and bridges that these people yeah. also built, like my great uncle. Several of my great uncles were employed by the, by the CCC. CCC. Yeah, it made a huge difference in their lives. I send them my thanks wherever they may be. Uh, Tom notes that uh, the uh, the effort helped to end the Dust Bowl. It offered employment to millions during the Great Depression. And as Tom argues, the CCC was a good idea in the 1930s, which it ran from 1933 to 1942. It employed over three million young men. And uh, he says it is a good idea today, too. In the first month of his term in office, Tom writes, President Biden committed to revisiting the CCC or something like it to deal with today's climate emergency. He attempted to build such a program into the uh, Democrats Inflation Reduction Act. But Joe Manchin, I believe it was, forced that to be removed from that package before passage. But Democrats like Senator Ed Markey, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, along with environmental advocacy groups, never gave up on the plan and pushed Joe Biden in recent weeks, according to AP, to issue an executive order authorizing what the White House unveiled on Wednesday as what they now call the American Climate Corps. Quote, after years of demonstrating and fighting for a climate core, we turned a generational rallying cry into a real jobs program that will put a new generation to work, stopping the climate crisis, unquote. That is from Varshini Prakash. Am I saying that right? No, Varshini Prakash. Prakash, Varshini Prakash, executive director of the Sunrise Movement, an environmental group of uh, young people that has uh, long led this push for a climate core with the new core quote and the historic climate investments won by our broader movement. The path towards a green new deal is beginning to become visible, says Prakash. Prakash. <laughs> Just don't call it a green new deal because it'll freak out the Republicans. Oh, well, then let's by all means call it a Green New Deal. I am just <laughs> fine with that. By the way, Prakash is uh, is actually a frequent Biden critic, but was on the uh, phone call announcing uh, this new plan along with a whole bunch of groups. So uh, the program, as it is announced on Wednesday by the Biden White House, is scaled back from the original plan that they had in the Inflation Reduction Act, and I think in the original Build Back Better Act, which Joe Manchin also helped kill. But the uh, White House said the program will employ more than 20,000 young adults who will build trails, plant trees, help install solar panels, and do other work 
to boost conservation and help prevent catastrophic wildfires in the spirit of the original CCC, which, uh, as I said, their work still stands as a memorial to uh, so much that they did so long ago. And it is uh, we're still all able to enjoy it. Oh, yeah. We're still benefiting from so much of the architecture and the infrastructure that the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 30s put into our national parks. And I just want to add one special thing that I thought Kate Aronoff over at the New Republic had an interesting approach to it. She said, so why this is so important, this Climate Conservation Corps, I mean, this American Climate Corps. Corps, Uh, She said that projects that the Climate Corps would tackle are all the work that is necessary for decarbonization, but isn't especially profitable. It's Mm -hmm. really hard to find a workable business model, for example, for protecting coastlines against erosion. So um, that's not uh, a big money maker, not a big profit maker. It's really hard to find somebody that will that will get the kind of profits out of it that they demand for a private company. So the Climate Corps bypasses that. And, you know, of course, it's also a jobs training program, which is a big deal as well. Well, the uh, website for the American Climate Corps says it will put a new generation of Americans to work, conserving our lands and waters, bolstering community resilience, advancing environmental justice, deploying clean energy, implementing energy efficient technologies and tackling climate change. American Climate Corps members will gain the skills to, uh, necessary to access good paying jobs that are aligned with high quality employment opportunities after they complete their paid training or service program. The program President Biden rolled out through executive action is much smaller than the one that uh, Senators Markey and and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez envisioned in their Green New Deal proposal. But, says Tom Hartman, it is still a great start. Yes. Uh, Adding to that, if uh, you know someone who is interested in joining up, you can go to the website, uh, which is whitehouse.gov slash Climate Corps. Uh, All right. More on the American Climate Corps and related matters coming up a little bit later in our Green News report today. But first, let's take a break and we will come back with some news underscoring. Well, you know, that feeling that I've had about whether Donald Trump will or won't actually be on next year's presidential ballot in November. A few pieces of related news is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yes, I am. Love that song. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Yes, I am still hooked on that feeling. <laughs> Not a prediction, not even a belief, mind you, but a feeling. It's just a feeling, a spidey sense, if you will, that Donald Trump may not, when all is said and done, even be on the November general election next uh, ballot next year. If I was forced to bet, I guess I would say that he (laughs) will be on the ballot, but I just can't 
uh, I just can't shake that feeling for uh, for several reasons that he won't be. And I got a few more pieces of information, some news today that support that possibility. As the criminal case against him, cases against him have piled up, the former president and 2024 GOP frontrunner has wondered aloud in recent months to attorneys and confidants about what life would be like if he's convicted in the various criminal cases against him and if appeals fail, reports Adam Ronsley and uh, Aswan Subsang, pardon me, at Rolling Stone. Uh, while Trump publicly professes confidence privately, three three sources familiar with his comments say that he's been asking lawyers and other people close to him what a prison sentence would look like for a former American president. Would he be sent to a so-called club-fed-style prison that's relatively comfortable as far as these things go, or, quote, a bad prison? Would he serve out a sentence in plush home confinement? Would government officials try to strip him of his lifetime Secret Service protections? What would they make him wear? Would the authorities make him wear, quote, one of those jumpsuits in prison if his enemies actually did ever get him into a cell? What would happen, including in the Fulton County, Georgia, criminal case against him and various co-defendants, which he can't simply pardon himself for what would happen if he were convicted and sentenced, but also reelected next year. Now, I suspect his biggest fear uh, is what about my hair and makeup? Yeah, seriously, there would be presumably no more dye jobs in prison, no Oof. more hairspray or yeah. uh, or hair dryers, you know, the way uh, that he will look look to everyone is no doubt his biggest fear. That is why, according to uh, reporting today from The Guardian on the new uh, book by uh, Trump's former White House staffer and star January 6 hearings witness Cassidy Hutchinson, Trump refused to wear masks during the height of the covid pandemic. As The Guardian reports today, Hutchinson describes scenes before and after Trump's COVID bout in which he also showed disregard for his own safety and in particular that of those around him. Trump's antipathy to masks and its effect on the subsequent refusal to mask up was established early in the pandemic. The Guardian notes Hutchinson describes a visit to a mask making factory in Phoenix in May of 2020 in the chaotic and frightening first months of the covid onslaught. Trump was widely criticized for not wearing a mask during the tour of the Honeywell mask making facility. Though workers uh, did wear masks and a sign was visible that read attention face mask required in this area. You may remember that visit. That's the one where for some reason live and let die uh, by Paul McCartney was playing loudly in the background. Yeah, it was all too perfect. Trump told reporters he tried a mask but did not wear it. Hutchinson writes that Trump, quote, decided on a white mask and then asked staffers what they thought. Hutchinson said she slowly shook her head. The president pulled the mask off and asked why I thought he should not wear it. 
I pointed at the straps of the N95 mask that I was holding. When he looked at the straps of his mask, he saw that they were covered in bronzer, the heavy makeup that he applies every day to give him that beautiful fake-looking orange sheen that he believes make him, makes, him, uh, makes him look good. Why did no one else tell me that, he snapped. I'm not wearing this thing. The press would criticize him for not wearing a mask, Hutchinson writes, not knowing that the depths of his vanity had caused him to reject masks and then millions of his fans followed suit. And, of course, hundreds of thousands of those fans ended up dying because of Donald Trump's vanity. So you suppose that he'll be able to apply his bronzer in prison? All the way across the top of his bald gray head. As Rolling Stone reports, the private questions are a departure from the air of supreme confidence and invincibility that Trump has projected publicly. I discussed this once or twice in recent weeks. I noted that I, I guarantee no matter what happens in these criminal trials and no matter how long they actually take, Donald Trump is going to bed terrified each and every night right now terrified about going to jail for these reasons. Nonetheless, on Sunday, when he was asked about that very thing by NBC's Kristen Welker, he pretended the thought, well, it didn't even enter his mind. When you go to bed at night, do you worry about going to jail? No, I don't, really. I don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. Sure. I'm built a little differently, I guess, because I have had people come up to me and say, how do you do it, sir? How do you do it? Uh, I don't even think about it. <laughs> sure, Jan. Yeah, he does not even think about it. Yeah. Uh, so sources close to Trump and those who've heard him ask these questions about what would happen if he was sent to jail uh, tell Rolling Stone that it's clear the gravity of his mounting legal peril is getting to Trump, regardless of whether the former president can admit to it in public or not. Still... Trump, as Rolling Stone reports, is set to stand trial in four criminal cases spanning 91 charges, including, as Rolling Stone reports it, several felony counts. Note to our friends at Rolling Stone, all 91 of those charges are, in fact, felony counts. But here's the part that I, I continue to ponder, even if most in the media, I realize, and even our friends who have joined us on this show many times, Digby and Driftglass and Keith Barber, etc., they continue to dismiss the possibility. But uh, as Rolling Stone notes, the closest equivalent to Trump's legal predicament lies in the 1973 federal prosecution of Nixon Vice President Spiro Agnew on charges related to bribery. In that case... Agnew struck a plea deal with prosecutors in order to avoid prison, which netted him only probation. Like Trump, Agnew campaigned as a populist pugilist eager for conflict with the political left. But as the criminal investigation of him mounted privately, according to his biographer, Charles Holden, quote, Agnew was utterly terrified of going to jail. He was terrified of that, and the humiliation of it haunted him as well. So do you think that concern is any less in the malignantly narcissistic Donald Trump? Really? Do you think he wouldn't sell off Ivanka to the highest bidder <laughs> eventually if it would keep him uh, out of prison somehow? I don't. I think 
uh, as as that possibility becomes more and more real to him, if it does, well, things could change in this entire matter. He might want to make a deal somehow, and that deal might include getting off that ballot, not running next November. Again, I'm not predicting that uh, that that will happen. I'm suggesting that it absolutely could happen, which is just one of several different reasons for my feeling that Trump may not ultimately be on the ballot next November, as everyone is currently just presuming. Well, it's better not to presume overall, because then you end up getting surprised by what might actually happen. That isn't what you expected. So I do understand you're being hooked on this feeling that uh, Trump might not be on the ballot. There is enough evidence to keep that in mind when you're thinking ahead about, gosh, what's this going to look like? How do you prepare for that? There are other reasons. It's not just his vanity, uh, but there's other uh, reasons that... uh, you know, that are either more or less likely GOP voters, for example, could come to their senses as unlikely as that certainly seems. But they might realize that, you know, nominating a dude with 91 criminal felony charges may not be the way to attract and win over new voters that Trump would need in order to win next year. And then, of course, there is this. The Minnesota Supreme Court on Wednesday set a briefing and argument schedule for the case attempting to force Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon to disqualify Donald Trump from the GOP primary ballot in the state on March 5th of next year. That's the primary and from the general election on November 5 of next year under the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist disqualification clause, which blocks someone from taking office after they have both taken an oath to the Constitution previously and then subsequently, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Now, this case in Minnesota was filed by a group led by our friends and uh, constitutional law experts at the nonprofit freespeechforpeople.org, along with Minnesota's former Secretary of State Joan Grau as the lead petitioner in that case. And uh, this case got to move pretty quickly because the names uh, for the primary ballot must be submitted to Secretary Simon's office no later than 63 days before the primary. That means there's a deadline of January 2 for the March primary, for which absentee voting will then begin on January 19. So this has got to move pretty quickly. According to the court order on Wednesday, the court is asking the petitioners, as well as the defendants and those who are filing briefs in support of either, to address such issues as standing and ripeness. In other words, do the petitioners have the right to sue here at all in this venue? And is this the right time to file such a challenge? The legal construction of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, including but not limited to Uh, whether it is self-executing, the court would like to know. In other words, does it require a law or an act of Congress in order to disqualify someone? Or do the simple words as written in the Constitution make clear that someone can be disqualified simply by violating the clause of the Constitution itself? The court is asking for briefings on whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment operates to preclude a person from being president of the United States specifically. In other words, does it apply to presidents or only to every other elected official 
uh, at both the federal and state levels. And uh, finally, whether Section 3 applies to a person who has previously taken an oath as president of the United States. So those last two points seem to be the latest favorite of those who are hoping to avoid the simple original text of the clause. They're now claiming that that clause, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, does not apply to a president. It applies to everyone else, but not the president, because the words of the clause read as follows. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who have who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or any as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. So the argument there is that a president somehow... <laughs> is not an officer of the United States. Now, it seems pretty weak sauce to me, but I am not a constitutional law expert. Neither am I, but yeah, I mean, officer of the United States, if the president isn't one, who is? Well, uh, everybody apparently but the president because it as, doesn't as they're it making doesn't this case explicitly say the words the president right. right now you and i of course we are not constitutional law experts but the folks at free speech for people actually are constitutional law experts and they note on this point in their myths and realities about 14.3 document uh, quote, as Professor Gerard Magliocca, a leading national expert on the insurrectionist disqualification clause, has explained the original public meaning of the clause would include the president. From 1865 to 1868, that would be when the amendment was being drafted and adopted, Prominent figures, including President Andrew Johnson, key congressional leaders involved in drafting or advocating for the 14th Amendment, and lawyers in formal papers all repeatedly referred to the president as a, quote, officer of the United States. It was often preceded by the words chief or civil. This phrase, they write, was used in official proclamations, widely reprinted in newspapers, in papers that were presented to the U.S. Supreme Court, and on the House and Senate floor. The only time the issue was raised during the debate on Section 3 in Congress, Senator Justin Morrill, one of the amendment's drafters, stated that Section 3 applies to the presidency. As a practical matter, the expert Mag uh, Maglioka notes... People in 1866 would probably have been perplexed if Confederate President Jefferson Davis or Confederate General Robert E. Lee could be elected as president of the United States, but could not hold any other office under this constitutional proposal. Oral arguments, meanwhile, in the Minnesota Supreme Court are now set on this matter for November 2. There's also a uh, separate case moving forward in Colorado filed by another nonprofit, that's uh, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. That has six petitioners, including three Republicans and three unaffiliated voters there in Colorado. 
and the folks at Free Speech for People uh, who filed the Minnesota case tell us that uh, we should expect more of those cases uh, filed elsewhere in other states and venues. Of course, we have been discussing 14.3 and the fact that it appears pretty clearly to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot due to having engaged in the January 6, 2021 insurrection that a bipartisan majority of U.S. senators agreed he incited during his uh, second impeachment trial. We've been talking about this for more than two years now. The rest of the media is finally taking notice of this matter, and I'm happy about it. But a week or two ago, I opened up our phone lines to listeners to get their thoughts on 14.3. And not on whether they thought that the Constitution applied here, that it applied to Donald Trump, but whether or not it would be a good political idea to remove Trump from the ballot next year, given the argument from Trump supporters and even from some Democrats that, you know, voters should be the ones to decide whether Trump wins office, uh, not some dusty old Civil War era provision by the framers of the U.S. Constitution. But of course, that's not how the Constitution works. As so-called constitutionalists have likely noticed by now, the Second Amendment, for example, is much older than the 14th Amendment. And yet it is still in play and it has even been ridiculously expanded and cynically misinterpreted to allow essentially unlimited weapons for all. But the point here is that it is still in effect. Uh, the 14th Amendment is as much in effect as is the Second Amendment, as is the First Amendment and all of the others that have not been changed by a subsequent amendment. You may not like it, but it is still a constitutional amendment and supporters of the Constitution must support it or change it through an amendment process. But for now, it's still there. Sorry. So we had a caller uh, a couple of weeks ago when I opened the phones, a caller named Michael, who rang in to say that he was an attorney and that if he was arguing this case uh, in defense of Donald Trump, he would make the argument that it does not apply to Donald Trump because what happened on January 6th was not an insurrection, as Michael claimed. Now, never mind that both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, as well as courts of law, have already determined that it absolutely was an insurrection, Michael felt that it was not. And boy, howdy, did I get a lot of email from listeners after that show specifically speaking to that, uh, that segment and that caller in particular. From listener Cynthia to bradcast at bradblog.com, subject, my opinion, disqualify Trump. Hi, Brad. Cindy writes, I feel the same way as you and some of your other callers. The Constitution has clear language about it. That as someone who is not a constitutional scholar seems clear to me. And if we don't follow the Constitution, then what good is it? That resonates with me, she writes. And as for lawyer Michael, arguing that January 6th was not an insurrection because there weren't all of these pitched battles, I forgot his wording, she says, to that, I would ask him, what in the hell was that pitched battle the Capitol Police were engaged in with the maggots, as she calls them, MAGA people? 
And if uh, he thought it all should have been bigger, well, I would also point out that Trump did nothing about it, she says, like call out the National Guard to go fight it. Trump, perhaps only by inaction, had the Guard stand down. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if that was a topic of his pre-planning discussions with his co-conspirators. Otherwise, she says, I also firmly believe that Trump gets back in that if Trump gets back in the White House, he will end democracy in this country and the damage that he will do to the federal government will leave us a failed state like Haiti. We would all, maggots included, be screwed. She used a different word. But (laughs) anyway, uh, love your show best, Cynthia. Thank you very much for that note, Cynthia. Pam also writes to bradcast at bradblog.com to say, Dear Brad, great show as always. For those who can read and interpret the Constitution, 14.3 is crystal clear. The orange menace should be barred from being on any and all ballots in the USA. In regard to the evil Federalist Society stance on 14.3, she's referring here to the two far-right Federalist Society attorneys who actually wrote a 126-page article for a legal publication in support of disqualifying Donald Trump based on the 14th Amendment from the far-right Federalist Society. Um, Pam says, uh, my feelings is that that is being directed to the prostitutes, for want of a better description, on the stolen Supreme Court. They are sending a clear signal to them that they must rule against the orange menace should the case reach them and knowing him, it will. The impression given by the Republican attorney Now, of course, I don't know that the guy who called in, that Michael was actually a Republican, but he did seem to be pretty strongly defending Donald Trump. The impression given by the Republican attorney, writes Pam, who called into your show, is that he is a racist. Why does one have to draw BLM into the conversation, as Michael did? He had claimed that the January 6th insurrectionists were somehow being punished disproportionately to uh, those Black Lives Matter protesters following the police murder of George Floyd. As an officer of the court, Michael, uh, that attorney, should be honoring and upholding both the Constitution and the law. Yours sincerely, Pam, the forever Bernie progressive. Doc Collins writes in via Facebook. You can find us at Facebook at The Brand Blog. Uh, to say, in response to what I could only guess was an ambulance chaser. (laughs) They really don't like that guy, do they? He didn't seem that bad. First he was a Republican, now he's an ambulance chaser. Anyway, on the uh, 11th of January, 45 was impeached for, that's right, insurrection. Furthermore, his response to said efforts was, quote, you're very special, we love you. That, says Doc Collins, sounds like aid and comfort to me. In fact, one of the things that disqualifies you for office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, in addition to engaging in rebellion or insurrection, is in fact giving aid or comfort to enemies of the Constitution. Uh, Collins continues, we as a nation have had plenty of time to amend the 14th if we wanted to. We could have removed the provision. 
I don't think it would be a bad thing for Trump to be denied being on any ballot. Sure, it will help the right whip votes, but it will help the left more, he says. Here is why. An issue on the left with younger voters is lack of participation. A clear demonstration that the system does work would help achieve massive get-out-the-vote campaigns, he argues. In the West Wing TV series, an amazing quote, decisions are made by those who show up. And uh, finally, from William in England. Do you, do you think it, it's that, William, in England? <laughs> no. Okay. We don't know. It could be. Anyway, William in England writes, Hi, Brad and Desi. Me again, William from England. <laughs> uh, Re your uh, show on uh, Monday, the Monday call-in show, uh, Trump's many indictments keeping him awake at night, as I had argued that it uh, a couple weeks ago that that was happening. He says, Really? Have you not been paying attention to Trump's history, the the casino indictments, the university incitements? I think he means indictments. The Trump Tower fiasco, his father's indictments. He's kind of used to it, says William. Well, uh, William, thank you, but uh, maybe yes and maybe no. None of those cases that you mentioned, actually, to my knowledge, were actually criminal indictments with prison as the penalty. Those were all civil cases where worst case scenario is that Trump would have to pay some money to somebody. This is a very different animal. And I think the Rolling Stone reporting, uh, if it is to believe, seems to underscore that. But I take William's point. Also, regarding the question of the 14th Amendment, third section, he writes, the annoying lawyer nearly had it. <laughs> He's annoying, he's Republican, he's a racist. Anyway, the annoying lawyer nearly had it, says William. It doesn't depend on how you define insurrection, but ultimately whether Trump is found guilty in court or not, which, he says, has yet to be determined. But to my mind and yours, seems pretty cut and dried. Well, it, I know it seems ungrateful to respond this way since William is in England where they don't even have a written constitution, but ours is written, William, and it says absolutely nothing about being found guilty in a court of law before, that, before this can be applied. What we do have is the historic use of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and with no court verdict at all. No court verdict is necessary to trigger it. Once again, I'm leaning on uh, our friends, uh, their myth and realities about 14.3 document from our friends at Free Speech for People. They write, quote, During Reconstruction years, immediately after the passage of the 14th Amendment, states, Congress, and the U.S. Department of Justice routinely applied the Insurrectionist Disqualification Clause to people who had not been convicted of any crime. For example... In Worthy v. Barrett, 1869, a board of county commissioners in North Carolina determined that a sheriff who had served as sheriff under the Confederacy but was never actually charged with any crime was disqualified under Section 3. 
This was the rule they write, not the exception, as the vast majority of Confederate officials were never actually charged with any crimes. William uh, concludes here, sorry if this comes off a bit prickly. I'm probably a bit depressed about the state of the planet. Mm. I don't know how you guys keep so cheery, but you know, I love you for it. Thank you so much for all you do. Forever your fan, William from England. Well, thanks, William from England. Thank you. Yes. Well thought out. Uh, but uh, and to all, these are all very well thought but, out. But uh, they are. Thanks for all of those. You can write me at uh, bradcast at bradblog.com if you'd like to respond. But uh, just one note, last note for William here. Do not uh, misinterpret our cheeriness. I assure you, we are constantly terrified <laughs> and crying on the inside <laughs> about the very same things that have made you a bit prickly, William. Thank you again for the note. All right, and very much to that end, our Green News Report is up next. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. So, just in case there's uh, too much good news in your Green News report <laughs> coming up, Des, yeah. let me uh, let me go ahead and pre-ruin that for everybody. Oh, gosh, this just in from the uh, from New York Times. The, this August was the planet's hottest on record. That, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, June and July also broke records. Now, yeah. I think that we already did we already report that August was the hottest month on record. Yes, we did. That was from data from Copernicus, the European Union's climate service. So uh, they always come out first, and then NOAA and NASA follow a couple of weeks later. Here they we are. We follow behind Europe? Yeah, they take a little bit longer. They Come have a on, different Noah data and set. NASA. Get it together. <laughs> so basically, though, this is how it works. And yeah, uh, as expected, NOAA and NASA both confirm that August was the hottest August ever recorded in um, since uh, what, the 1850s. Since ever. Since since, ever. No, it's ever on the planet. I think it was, wasn't it uh, the hottest that they had any record of since man Yes. Roamed the planet? Well, since we have any direct measurements of from the 1850s is when I believe those measurements began. We also have, you know, proxy measures um, from tree rings and other things, but, you know, those aren't included in the data sets that Copernicus and NOAA and NASA use to make these specific determinations. Anyway, it was hotter than hell. Yes. And, um, and we had and lots yet, of extreme weather disasters that were turbocharged by that heat. And yet... It was likely, as the saying now goes, the coolest summer of the rest of your lives. As discussed <laughs> in our latest Green News report. We must phase out coal, oil and gas in a fair and equitable way and massively boost renewables. World nations grapple with climate change at UN General Assembly. We will use our energy dominance to deny our enemies revenue. DeSantis vows to unleash fossil fuels while downplaying climate change. This is not about the politics. 
This is about doing what's right for the country in the long term. Conservative UK Prime Minister weakens Britain's climate policies. Plus, President Biden launches the first ever American Climate Corps. All of those launches and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The future is not fixed. Right. It's broken. We're kind of hoping you guys might help fix it. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Tessie Doyen, summer is wrapping up here in the U.S. A long, cruel summer. It's just getting started in Australia, but I understand things are not looking good down under already. No, unfortunately, Australia is dealing with a scorcher. A spring heat wave is shattering records with temperatures 20 to 25 degrees hotter than average and putting dozens of runners in the Sydney Marathon in the hospital for heat exhaustion this week. In politics, in a Texas oil field on Wednesday, Republican 2024 presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis downplayed climate change in unveiling his energy agenda, vowing to withdraw the United States from global climate pacts and the U.S. commitment to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions, expand extraction of fossil fuels on the public's lands, and slash federal regulations on pollution and conservation to boost domestic fossil Fossil fuel production. He did that in the middle of an oil field. Yep. DeSantis also said that as president, he'd bring gas prices down to $2 a gallon, <laughs> a difficult prospect given that oil prices are set on the global market. <laughs> In international diplomacy, at the United Nations General Assembly underway in New York, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that current government actions to cut dangerous climate warming emissions are, quote, falling abysmally short, even as the world just had a rash of deadly extreme weather disasters and its hottest summer on record. Guterres called on nations to enact key steps, like ending billions in annual subsidies for fossil fuels, implementing a price on carbon and assisting developing countries with adaptation and mitigation projects. Guterres targeted wealthy, high-emitting countries and their obligations to address the crisis they created. G20 countries are responsible for 80% of greenhouse emissions. They must lead. They must break their addiction to fossil fuels. To stand the fighting chance of limiting global temperature rise, We must phase out coal, oil and gas in a fair and equitable way and massively boost renewables. Yeah, but here was my favorite comment from Guterres. Humanity has opened the gates of hell. I think he's got it about right. President Biden addressed the U.N. on Tuesday, focusing on deadly extreme weather disasters around the world and highlighted the surge in historic U.S. climate actions under his administration. From new funding to assist developing countries to adapt to climate impacts and transition to new energy and new policies under the Democrats' landmark climate law, the Inflation Reduction Act. Last year, I signed into law in the United States the largest investment ever anywhere in the history of the world to combat the climate crisis and help move the global economy toward a clean energy future. But we need more investment from public and private sector alike, especially in places that have contributed so little to global emissions but face some of the worst effects 
of climate change. In the UK, Conservative Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who was not at the UN summit, this week backtracked on the UK's successful climate policies. He rolled back a 2030 ban on gas and diesel cars to 2035 Mm. and rolled back upgrading energy efficiency projects and transitioning to electric heat pumps. UK climate scientists said the rollback puts the country's legally binding 2050 net zero target in jeopardy, and energy experts said it will prolong the UK's dependence on fossil fuels and damage its growing clean energy industries. What the hell is he thinking? That's an excellent question. Thank you. And finally, good news for America. President Biden used his executive authority to create the first ever American Climate Corps, a paid green jobs training and service program for young adults modeled after the Depression era Civilian Conservation Corps. A key goal of youth climate campaigners, the Climate Corps will employ more than 20,000 young adults to build projects in clean energy, conservation and climate resilience, like restoring coastal wetlands, wildfire prevention, and building out solar and wind projects. Very, very cool. Yes. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. And it just might be the prettiest thing you'll ever see. It's a new day. Oh, baby, it's a new day. We could use one. <laughs> Thank you very much, Desi yep. Doyen. We're Thanks keep to trying. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other that we've ever done, you can download all of them for free at bradblog.com. Share them with your friends, your family, your enemies, bradblog.com. <laughs> and hey, while you're there, please consider hitting one of those donate buttons. You are the only thing that keeps us on your public airwaves. So please consider a one-time donation or a automated monthly uh, donation of any amount you can afford. It is greatly appreciated and very much needed. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter, I am the Bradblog. Desi is Green News Report. Yes. We'd both love to hear from you if you like. And I think that's it. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. If you're like me